Well, happy Easter. My name is Jarrett Stevens, and we are here today to live in the reality of that story, the story of a God who would move heaven and earth so that you could know him. A story that is spoken to and spoken about through every page of this book, and I believe the story that has actually led your story to this day. We are here today to celebrate Easter, and I want to let you know our church has been praying for this day and praying for you specifically for weeks and weeks now. About 40 days ago, Ash Wednesday, the start of the Lent season, our church gathered together in this room and worshiped God, and then we prayed prayers, and we even wrote down uh, on little chips of wood the names of our friends, our family, our coworkers who we wanted to see enter into a relationship with Jesus. In fact, you walked right by those on your way in today. In the lobby, there's a display where we've included all the names that our church has been praying for for the last 40 days. We've been praying for you. We've been praying for this weekend. We are expectant to see what God is going to do. And in a little bit, we're going to actually have an opportunity for us to respond to the reality of Easter. I want to lead you through an opportunity to really respond to the reality of Jesus and to figure out what it is that you are going to do about what it is that he has done for you. And so I am excited and I am hopeful and expectant about today and how your story may very well change this Easter. I love this time of year. I love all that Easter represents. I love all the traditions that go into it. I love seeing new things come to life. I love our city acting like it's spring, but not fully committing. I love the reminders of what is possible in God. I love all the things that we do only at Easter time and things we don't even really even think about any other time throughout the rest of the year. You think about some of the traditions that you do that you have done already or you will do today when it comes to Easter, things that you may not even know why you do them or where they came from. Think about just the mascot of Easter for a moment. Let's just take a second and think about the mascot of Easter, an Easter bunny, a six-foot-tall <laughs> Easter bunny coming after your children. Do you wonder why they cry and scream at the sight of this bunny? And listen, this is no ordinary six-foot-tall bunny. This bunny lays eggs, apparently, and then hides them from you. And we celebrate this every year and don't even think twice about the six-foot-tall egg-laying bunny. You think about even some of the, the candy that we eat only this time of year. There's things that you eat only this time of year. I mean, think about peeps and Cadbury eggs at any other time in the year. It seems like blasphemy. It seems like something you would not want to do. And yet we eat these candies so much over this time of year that it keeps these businesses in business the other 364 days of the year. Think about even some of the maybe religious practices that you've participated in or even done this week or this weekend, and, and maybe you've done them your whole life and you've never even stopped to ask why. Maybe for you, you've grown up in a home or even this Lenten season, you chose to give up something for Jesus and you actually gave up. There's a tradition where you don't eat meat on Fridays. Did you grow up in a home or maybe you practice this where you just don't eat meat? You, it's, a, it's a beautiful, symbolic way to say, hey, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to give this up. And so that's why we have fish Fridays during Lent. It's because you can give up meat. And it's a beautiful thought and gesture. But in reality, it's, it's actually nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's a tradition, but it's not actually found 
in the Bible. It's still a good thing, but it's just not in the Bible. What is in the Bible, actually, in the Old Testament, is an old verse that says that thou shalt not eat Taco Bell Doritos Locos tacos any day of the year. That's actually in the Bible. It was a prophecy that was spoken thousands and thousands of years ago of our impending doom at the hands of Taco Bell. There, there's things that we do, things that we eat that we don't even think twice about, religious practices that we partake in that we don't even stop to go, okay, why do I do that? Or why have I done that? Every year, think about it. You even today made a choice to come to church. Now, I'm not sure where God is at in your life or where church kind of falls on your radar screen, but there's a lot of folks for whom, really, honestly, church is a, a thing that they want to do, but maybe don't get around to doing, except for maybe on major holidays. And so something in your soul told you today that you needed to be here. Do you ever wonder why that is or where that actually came from? I mean, just think about this for a second. You actually got up today. Good job on that one. You didn't only get up, you got dressed up today. And you need to give yourselves a hand for that one. You look great. You not only got up, you not only got dressed up, but you showed up here this afternoon. Now, why is that? At any part in the process, you stop and think, why is this so important to me? Why am I doing maybe something I do every week and don't think twice about? Or why am I doing something maybe I only do once or twice a year? Why is this? Why is Easter so significant and so important to me? I think it's because Easter speaks to something deep within our souls. And what I want to do for the next few moments is actually walk through the, the what and the why of Easter so that you can really understand who it is that's at the center of it all. For the next few moments, I want to walk through the what, like the details, the events, what really happened, because you may have heard it a hundred times and never paid attention to it before, or you may have never heard at all what it is that Jesus has done for you. And then we're going to walk through the why behind Easter. Why did he do what he did? So that ultimately you can know who Jesus is and so that you can enter into a relationship with him today. And so here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to look at an eyewitness account of someone who was there through all of the major events leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's found in the Gospel of John. And so if you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and open your Bible, pull it out right now, and you can turn to John, actually chapter 19. If not, there should be a blue Bible in your seat back. There should be a blue Bible in your seat back. And you can turn to page 755 in the blue Bible. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm not asking you to believe all this, but I'm asking you to at least read it for yourself. So would you grab a Bible and open to page 755, John 19. You, there should be a card on the blue Bible. We're going to get to this in a moment. I want you to hold on to this card because we're going to get to this in a moment as we respond to who this Jesus is together. But here's the deal. We're going to look at this eyewitness account of the life of Jesus from one of his followers. Now, interesting point about John. Again, you may have heard of John or John 3.16. You're familiar with that verse? Now, John is actually a unique character among all the disciples and followers of Jesus because John was the only disciple who was there with Jesus at the Last Supper. He's the only disciple who went from the Last Supper to the cross, the only one of the original 12 who actually was there at the cross. And he's one of the first disciples to be on the scene of Jesus' resurrection. John has a very unique perspective. In fact, John had garnered a nickname from Jesus. He was called the Beloved, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And many times throughout John's gospel account, he refers to himself in third person, like a rapper, that he is the disciple whom Jesus loves. And we're actually going to see that in a moment. So we're going to look at John's eyewitness account of the events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus so that we understand the what and the why and the who of Easter. Now, you may be familiar with the story that Jesus was betrayed 
by one of his own followers, Judas. And he was falsely arrested and, and, and accused of crimes he didn't commit. And they so wanted, the religious leaders of that day, so wanted to put an end to Jesus that they kind of trumped up all these charges and they ultimately led to a death sentence for Jesus, for crimes he had never committed and a death that he did not deserve. And so this is the events that kind of lead up to where John picks up in John 19, verse 17. Jesus had been beaten. The Roman officials wanted to make an example of Jesus, to end his movement. And so they physically beat Jesus before they crucified him. They whipped him. They punched him. They pulled out his beard. They humiliated him so as to send a message to any other wannabe messiahs. And in fact, historians record that there were many other people who were crucified, who went to the cross for the crimes that they actually committed. And many of them actually died at this point in this part of the crucifixion process. The beating was so severe that they didn't even survive it. So Jesus is within an inch of his life. And at that moment, they take the cross beam of the cross and throw it on his bloody and bruised back. Historians estimate that the cross beam, just the center cross beam, the vertical cross beam itself, weighed around 100 pounds. Imagine within an inch of your life having to carry that wooden beam to your execution. And so Jesus was led out from where they beat him, about a half a mile or so outside the city walls. They walked him through the center of the city. I've walked this path. These roads are very, very, very narrow. And they were filled with crowds who were weeping over what was happening. Crowds who were jeering. Crowds who were cheering on his execution. Crowds who were perplexed by who this man is. And Jesus makes his way through the town outside of the city of Jerusalem. Just days before he had entered into what we have come to call his triumphal entry. Now he was leaving in seeming disgrace and defeat. And they take him to Golgotha, the place where he was to be executed John 19, verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. That was the name of the place that they crucified criminals. Appropriate name, but it actually, geographically, like in the hillside, had some carvings that kind of had worn out in such a way that it sort of looked like a skull. So that's where they led him to, a place called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, John says, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Here he was, this man who had committed no crimes, this man who had come so that we may live, was being put to death for us. The one whom just days before the people of Jerusalem had hailed as the king of Israel now is being killed like a common criminal. And he sits there surrounded by sin in between two criminals on a cross. All of his followers and his disciples, all but a tiny handful had betrayed him, had denied him, had abandoned him. And there Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Savior of the world, hung on that cross. Now they thought they were winning. They thought if you, you kill this wannabe Messiah, you end the movement. We can silence these people now. We can end this movement of grace, but... What they didn't understand was this was the beginning of the movement of grace. 
that Jesus didn't accidentally get arrested and sent to a cross without it being beyond his sort of control or power. He willingly and even willfully set his life for that moment so that he could pay a price for the weight of our sin that we could never pay for ourselves. Jesus said, no, I will go and do for them what they cannot do for themselves. I will pay the price for the totality of all of humanity's depravity. I will take that upon myself. Like the Bible says, a lamb to the slaughter, I will go and pay the sacrificial price that none of them could pay by themselves for themselves. And so there he hung, and there he died. All the momentum of this movement was suddenly silenced and stilled. You have to imagine what that must have been like. Three years of the ministry and teaching and healing power of Jesus, and there he is, dead on a cross. All part of God's plan, but not at all what others had planned for him. And so as Jesus hung there on the cross, he died there on that cross for you and for me. All his followers gone. There were two who arose out of kind of the shadows, the secrecy of following Jesus. Two religious leaders who had decided to follow Jesus, but at a safe distance. They were religious leaders at that time, and so maybe they were afraid for their reputation or maybe even for their careers. But two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, kind of emerged out of the shadow and said, something has to be done about his body. Something has to be done to take care of the details of his death. And so this is what they did, John 19, 40, taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it. They took it down off of the cross and wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. In other words, they were embalming Jesus. They were preparing him to stay dead. And they did all this in accordance with Jewish burial customs. No one would know exactly what to do by the letter of the law than the religious, religious leaders of the law. They knew exactly what to do. So Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped Jesus, embalmed Jesus, and buried Jesus. Now look at this interesting note that John points out. Being an eyewitness himself to the events, he says that the place where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb. In the midst of the face of death, there is a garden. And it's as though God is telling us again and again and again and reminding you, and maybe this is what you need to hear today, that even in your darkest hour, even in your greatest defeat, even in the face of death, there is always the hope for life. There is always a garden, even in the face of death. No matter what season of life you may be in, you need to know that life is possible for you. And in the face of the cross, in the shadow that it cast, there was a garden, and these two men did the best they could to prepare Jesus to stay dead. And they had to do it in a hurry, because the kind of the religious system of that day, the, the, the laws that they sort of followed, insisted upon a day of rest every day of the week. It was called the day of Sabbath. Maybe you're familiar with it. Our culture has no concept of Sabbath. We don't know how to stop or how to rest. God created a better rhythm for our lives. It's called Sabbath, where we stop everything and rest. Well, guess what was coming right after the crucifixion of Jesus? It was the day of rest. It was the day of Sabbath. And so Joseph and Nicodemus quickly prepared his body, verse 42, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there in a tomb 
in a tomb that was borrowed, that was never intended for him, and that he never intended to stay in. They quickly wrapped his body and prepared his body and put it in the grave, handling the details of death. There Jesus had just days before ridden into the city of Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. Now here he lies in a borrowed tomb. But what death didn't know was that it was actually operating on borrowed time. Because Jesus was about to serve death and sin its final blow. Now, this is so interesting. Look at what happens. Jesus then is laid to die, and everyone goes to rest. Imagine the tension of that silence. Not being able to do anything, but let Jesus do what he came to do. And so they sit in the silence, waiting through Sabbath. And the second Sabbath broke, someone goes running for the tomb. Look at John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, the new week after Sabbath. Now, John gives us a very important detail. While it was still dark, that means in the first few seconds after Sabbath. Like the second the letter of the law was completed, someone comes running for the tomb. Who is it? Mary Magdalene. This woman who'd found new life and new purpose in Jesus. A woman that her culture and society had written off. Jesus had written a new story for. And so Mary Magdalene comes running to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, hit pause. We're going to get to that in a second. I find it very, very interesting that the first person on the scene of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a woman. It was not Joseph and Nicodemus who'd quickly prepared Jesus to stay dead. It was not his disciples, Peter, James, John. They'd all fled and were hiding. It was this woman a woman who in her day and her culture did not have equal status to men, but in the reality and kingdom of Jesus, she was fully equal and had full access to him. And because of her intimate access and relationship, knowing Jesus and following him just as everyone else, her faith was so great that she was the first on the scene. And I also have to believe that the reason that Mary was there is because she knew that it was actually two men who had prepared Jesus' body for death. And as a woman, she would have to go clean up their mess again. It's in the Bible. And so Mary is there, and she sees the stone has been rolled away, and she doesn't know what to do. Now keep in mind, Mary did not come there for a resurrection. She came there to take care of the details of death, not realizing that Jesus had already taken care of the details of life. She shows up to make sure that he stays dead, but he had already risen to make sure that she could have life. Now, she doesn't know. She doesn't get it. Even though prophecy had spoken about this for thousands of years, even though Jesus had all, as much as spelled it out for them, here's how it's going to happen. Son of man is going to offer his life, but I'll be raised again on the third day. She came expecting death. He came preparing life. And so she runs back. She doesn't know what to think. They, how could they do this? They already killed our Lord. They buried him in tomb. And now she believes they've stolen his body. John 20, verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Pause. The other disciple that John is referring to here is himself. Talking about himself in third person a lot in this book. He also lets you know exactly who he is. Came to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Notice he did not say the humble one. But the one Jesus loves, and she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. As if there could not be any more 
disgrace and defeat. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't even know where they've put him. See, their expectation was for Jesus to stay dead. So Peter, now pay attention to this, verse 3. Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Now, please pay attention to the detail that John secures throughout all of human history in the next few sentences. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just for those keeping score at home. John's a faster runner than Peter. And in the original manuscript, the very next verse says, and the other disciple could bench press 315, <laughs> twice as much as Peter. I don't know why, but John wanted to let you know that he got there first. But as soon as he gets there, he doesn't have the power to go in to see the power of what God has done. He stops at the door of an empty tomb. Verse 5, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he, but he couldn't go in. He, he was trying to process and take in Wait, what is happening here? What did he say? Why did he do this? And who is this Jesus? Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around the head of Jesus. The cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. Jesus kind of folded his death clothes and left them there as one final note that death had been defeated neatly and completely by Jesus. It was truly finished. Verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, <laughs> still not letting go, also went inside. Now, it, please grab a pen. We're going to be using it here in a moment, but I want you to use it right now. And you need to underline these words because this is where John has his come-alive moment with Jesus. He finally enters in, and what does it say? He saw and believed. He saw and believed. He saw what Jesus had done, what Jesus had done on the cross. He saw what Jesus had done to prepare his life for this moment. He saw what Jesus had done, enduring the shame, enduring the pain, enduring the weight, literally and spiritually, of the cross. He saw what he had done by being raised from God from the dead. He doesn't even see Jesus, but he knows who Jesus is in that moment. He has done what he said he would do, and he did it for me. John saw and believed everything he said he would do, everything he said he was, he has done, and he has done it for me. And when John got the reality of that, that is when he believed. After three years of Jesus' teaching, after three years of Jesus pouring his life and his power and his love into John, that was when John got it. He saw what he'd done. He got why he did it. And he finally saw who Jesus really is and for whom Jesus really came. And John would go on to reflect on the reality of resurrection by writing these words at the end of chapter 20. 
John 20, verse 30, he says this. This is very interesting. He says, Jesus actually performed many other signs. Jesus did a whole lot of other stuff in the presence of his disciples, which are not even recorded in this book. Now, this is very important. Please make a star next to this, circle this, remember this, whatever you have to do. This is what it all comes down to. But these are written. This is written. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may come alive. John said, just as I stepped in and saw what he had done, why he did it, and who he did it for. All of this has been recorded. The whole what and why and who of Easter is so that you would believe who Jesus is, what he's done, why he did it, so that you may believe and have life in him. Have life in him. Not just have another list of things to do and not do. Not just give you another religion to follow. No, all of it was done so that you would actually come alive and have life in him. The whole Easter message boils down to just simply this. Jesus came for me so that I could come alive. That's it. He came for me. Now you need to just let that word sit on you for a minute. He came for you. He came for you. I know you thought you weren't worth it. I know you've had moments where you thought you didn't deserve it. Maybe you've even had moments where you thought you didn't need it. But he came for you so that you could come alive in him. Have life, as John records earlier, to the fullest here on earth and well beyond. He came for you so that you could actually come alive in him, have life in him, through him, with him. This is what Easter boils down to. That's what's behind the what and the why and the who of Easter. And so Easter leads us to a decision. Easter leaves us with a question and that simply is this. What, what do you and I do about what Jesus has done for you? What do you do about what it is that Jesus has actually done for you? What is your response to the God who has already initiated, the God who has already done for you what you could not do for yourself to cover the cost of your sin, to make a way for relationship with God, to literally defeat sin and death and roll away every obstacle that stood in your way of you having a life with God? What do you do about that? What do you do about what God has done for you, how do you respond to the reality of a resurrection? Earlier this week, kids and I were out. It was one of those days where it was above 50 degrees, and so we decided to pretend like it was spring. <laughs> and we went to the park. And we were out playing at the park, and we bumped into an old friend of theirs that used to go to their school. They hadn't seen him in about a year or so, and it was so good to catch up with him and see him. 
And as I was catching up with his mom, they were off playing and having fun, and I was catching up with his mom, and all that had happened since they had moved. They were in town for Easter weekend, and so we were catching up. And after a couple minutes of talking to each other, both of us kind of stopped talking and were looking around, and I said, do you see our kids? And she said, nope. And I said, I don't either. I'm like, maybe we should go look for them. She said, yep. It's called parenting. And so what... <laughs> What we did is we started walking in the park looking for them. We couldn't find them anywhere. We were just over at Skinner Park, right around the corner. We're just in that little playground. They were nowhere to be found. I'm looking up in trees. I'm trying to find them. I don't see them anywhere. So I start to get a little concerned. Five minutes turns into 10 minutes. And my sort of, you know, purposeful walk looking for my kids turned into a little panic inside my heart. I don't know where my children are. And so I just begin yelling out their names as loud as I can. I don't care who hears. All I want is for my children to hear their daddy calling for them. And so I'm calling and walking and looking everywhere for them. And after about 10 minutes of searching, come to find out, they had very innocently sort of wandered off a block away and had kind of walked around the back of this. I blame the other kid that they were with, just for the record. I blame him. <laughs> wasn't my kid's idea. And so walk around the back and they had been on their own little adventure and had been totally oblivious that they were absolutely lost and that far away from their daddy. And so I was calling and calling their name and our daughter Gigi heard me yelling her name and kind of poked her head around the corner. A block away, I see her. And the second I see her, do you know what filled my heart? It wasn't anger that she had wandered off on me or she'd embarrassed me by having to yell their names. What filled my heart wasn't disappointment with her because this isn't the first time that's happened. <laughs> what filled my heart, what filled their father's heart was love that my child had been found. And so I ran across the front of the school and scooped her up into my arms and said, baby, don't ever, ever, ever leave my sight. Your daddy loves you too much to lose you. And as you think about your life this Easter, man, could it be that you were more lost than you even know? You've been wandering for years and you didn't even know you were lost. You've been trying as hard as you can. You've been following the path that everyone else went down or you thought you were supposed to go down and it keeps leading to dead ends. And you had no idea that you've been wandering lost for years. And maybe you thought you kind of had it all together and, you know, you sort of hit all the marks of what you're supposed to do at this stage in life or whatever, and you're kind of feeling good about yourself. But the truth is, if you were to be really honest, when you lay your head down on a pillow at night, there is something in your soul that knows that something is missing, that there's more, that trying to live this life on your own terms by your own power just isn't enough. It just isn't enough. Could it be that your Father God has been calling your name your whole life? He knows your name. Do you know that He knows your name? He has never 
once forgotten you. Never once turned his back on you. Never once has he been so disappointed by your wandering that he has walked away from you. No matter how many times you've walked away from him. Could it be that that longing in your soul is your heart hearing the voice of God calling your name today? And it's time for you to admit that you're lost, to stop running, to stop wandering, and to turn around and find the God of the universe running after you, putting his love on display for you through what Jesus has done, why he did it, and ultimately who he is so that you can actually have life with him. And so what do you do about what God has done for you this Easter? How do you want to respond? What's your response? What do you say to that God? And so we want to actually give you a chance to do that. I told you I wanted to give you an opportunity for you to determine and decide for yourself today how you respond to the God who has done it all for you, who put his love on display on a cross and through an empty tomb. And so we want to give you a chance to do that now. I told you about this card. I'm going to ask you to grab it and pull it out and hold that pen in your hand because we're going to have a moment of reflection right now and really a moment where we say, okay, I'm going to determine how I want to decide what I'm going to do about what God's done for me. And on the bottom of the card, you see there's a little tear-off section. The top part is for you to take home. The bottom part is for you to kind of fill out. And if you would, that helps because that helps us connect with you and help you take next steps. But over the next few moments, here's what I want you to consider. There's three boxes. The first one simply says this. It says, I'm coming alive in Jesus for the first time. And maybe for you today, it's been a life of wandering. It's been a life of wondering if there really is a God and if he really does care about you. And after you've heard the what and the why and the who of Easter, would you today say, I hear his voice calling my name and I'm going to stop and turn around and come alive in him today. I hope you do. In a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do just that. Maybe for you that you check that second box and say, you know what? Man, I've tried. I tried when I was younger. I think I even had a relationship with God, but then life happened, college happened, the divorce happened. I just lost touch. I've walked away from God, and I never thought of it in those terms, but that's really what's happened. I walked away from God. He never walked away from me. And so what would it look like for you today to say, I'm turning around. I'm coming back home to him. I cannot do it on my own. I don't want to do it without him anymore. I'm coming alive in Jesus by coming back to him today. And then that last box for you, maybe there's, you'd say, yeah, I've been in relationship with Jesus for years now, but the reality is there's parts of my heart, there's parts of your story, there's parts of your past that you thought were dead and done, that no life could ever come. And maybe what you need today is a resurrection in your soul. Maybe there's a part of your past, a pain, a wound. Maybe it's a hope or a dream for your future, for a family, for a marriage, for some purpose in your life. And you've just assumed that God was done with you. And that couldn't be any further from the truth. And so maybe you need to write down where you need your own personal resurrection in your heart today. And we've provided a little space for you to do that. But if you're anything like me, you need a lot more room than that. And so you can write on the back as much as you want 
because what our team is going to be doing is praying for you and with you over the course of this next week. We want to see where and pray for you need a resurrection in your story today. So that's it. What do you do about what he's done for you? How will you respond to the God who did it all, who did what you could not do to secure a relationship with him? So for the next moment, the band is actually going to sing. You don't even need to sing. You just need to get your pen, get this card, and figure out how do I want to respond to him today. And in a moment, I'm going to come back and lead us through a prayer together. And we are going to come alive. We are going to respond to this Jesus today. So take the next few moments to be silent, to reflect, and to respond to him. And then I'll come back up in a moment to lead us through prayer.